All right, give me just a second here. I'm going to pop up the Zoom meeting. Um, I think. There it goes. All right. Uh, there it is. All right. The dynamic heart functions from a personal identity constructed from various sources. Caring for people involves addressing how their constructed identity compares to their given identity. Every person operates out of some kind of identity. This is another way of saying that people operate from some perception of themselves that involves their beliefs, values, and choices. So, uh, what are some examples of things that we might believe about ourselves? Let's start with that question. And then we'll, we'll discuss this whole identity thing a little bit further as we move along. But let's start out. What are some examples of things we might believe about ourselves? I'm true to my word. Okay. So let me write some of these up here. So I'm honest. All right. What else? I'm a good person. Okay. Good person. What else? Okay, I'm compassionate. So these are things we believe. Then we have things that we value. Then we have things, I'll have to look at the next word in a second. Any, uh, those are probably a good list to start. Any other ones real quick? Things we might believe about ourselves to be true? It could even be mundane things. I'm handsome. Handsome. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so things we believe about ourselves. And then next, what are some examples of things we might value? And then that's going to lead to the choices that we make. But things that we might value may be connected to the things that we believe about ourselves. So if you're honest, what are you going to value? Truth. Okay, yeah, you can value truth. Okay. If you're compassionate, or if you think you're a good person, what might you value? Morals. Okay, morals. Okay, good. What about if you are compassionate? What would you value? Others. Others? Maybe even an idea like kindness. So you could say kindness. Uh, or you could say you value other people. Okay? If you think you're handsome, what do you value? Appearances. Okay, yeah. All right, appearances. All right. Now, um, what choices will these things lead you, to, lead you to? If you believe that you're an honest person and you value truth, what are you going to do? Okay, yeah, tell the truth. Okay, I'll be honest. All right. Good person, you value morals. How, what, how might that affect something that you do? Not cheating. Choices. Yeah, just specifically, what would be a specific example of a choice? So not cheating or... Any other ones come to mind? Okay, being upstanding, but like, translate that into an action. Okay, yeah, following rules. Okay, that's a good one. Following rules, all right? All right, compassionate, you value kindness in other people. What's that going to lead you to do? Give. Help others. Give, help others, okay. Let's just do a really specific example. Help someone on the side of the road, right? Maybe, just as an example. That's a question mark. That's a question mark, okay. But... 
let's say, you know, when I was a kid, let's say 30 years ago, you would have said, yeah, I'll, I'll stop helping somebody inside of the road because I'm compassionate and I want to help people, okay? Handsome, you value appearances, what choice is that going to affect? Grooming, okay, arrogance is more a character trait, but like specific actions. Yeah, groom, grooming, okay, so maybe you're going to go to the barber every, every two weeks. Okay, you're going to shower every two weeks, okay, yeah. Save on water. Yeah, true, okay. All right, so the point that we're trying to make here is that every person has things they think are true about themselves, and when they think these things are true, then there are certain things that are important to them, and when they think those things are true and those things are important to them, that then leads to choices. Now, as we're going to see later, there are disconnects between what we say we believe, between what we think we value, and between what we actually do. So, for example, there's a theoretical possibility. I might say I'm an honest person, I value truth, and then all of a sudden I lie. Well, that doesn't fit with the other two. That's not what we expect, but it is possible for that to happen. Or, someone might be a dishonest person and conversely sometimes tell the truth. But generally speaking, these things are all connected. Okay? People operate from different levels of identity simultaneously. Some are vital to self-perception and others not so much. So, let me erase this real quick. Well, we'll leave that up for a second. Um, so let's talk about different levels of importance between some of the things that I listed there on your sheet. Okay? So, both in terms of potential conflicts and whether a particular one is important. So, let's start out here. Maybe you're an MSU fan. Okay? How important is that? Okay, that's going to depend on if you're actually an MSU fan. Okay? You're an MSU fan, right? Okay? Alright, so, um, that is potentially important to a person. Now, so for uh, here's a good illustration of this. My dad and a number of his family members went to Purdue University in Indiana. Uh, it's kind of the area that I grew up in. So if I was going to say which team am I going to cheer for when it comes to Indiana sports, it was going to be Purdue. Yeah. No, Boilermakers, not Hoosiers. <laughs> no, that's all right. So, but, but what I'm saying is, but I don't have like a deep-seated commitment to that, right? So... Part of your life. It, yeah, it's just more like this is like a family thing, so you know, it, I don't have a real strong commitment to it. Whereas I think, I don't know, is anybody else in your family a state fan? Not really? No. So that's kind of a thing you're on your own with, which is fine, but for him, he has to be more committed to it because nobody else, it's not like everybody is doing this, so it's a, it's a different kind of a thing. So we would just say, you know, the level of importance, you know, that's going to vary depending. So we'll just say importance, okay? So that's going to vary. What about, let's take another one. Let's say someone reads comic books, and we could argue all day long about whether or not we should. I'm just saying, let's say that that's something that someone enjoys doing. How important is that in the grand scheme of things? Not very. Yeah, we'd probably say, you know, probably... Like reading yeah, so low importance. Let's put low importance on this. In terms of actual importance, not in terms of like how the person might perceive it. Your sports allegiance becomes a huge thing for some people, but probably shouldn't. All right, what about 
Um, the fact that you are a parent, spouse, and or child. How important is that? Both in, yeah, very important, okay. All right, so we'd say that's very important. That's just, I should probably use this uh, marker on my hand. Um, so let's say high importance, okay? And we'll talk more about why that is in a minute. All right, here's another one. Shops at Costco. High, low, medium importance, very high importance. Low, low. <laughs> okay. Less than low. No, just kidding. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to come down to, you know, a variety of things. All right. Let's say you're an ABC member. In the, in the scope of how important that should be to your life, Ambassador Baptist Church. Okay, okay. <laughs> what I mean by this is... Oh, yeah. So we would say this should probably be high importance to how we're patting our choices and things, okay? Um, what about employee? That you have a job and you're working at that job? Yeah, I think we'd say probably high, you know, at least moderate, but definitely probably high in many cases. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Mike's downstairs, so I know you like to pick on him about that. All right, um, let's say that you're a person who enjoys jokes. That could be an aspect of your personality. Is that high importance, moderate importance, low importance in the grand scheme of things? Probably low, okay. Um, and then exercises regularly. So a lot of you are saying moderate. Let's talk about that more in a minute. Exercise only to your age. I think because of the, the amount of time and effort it has to put into it, generally, if they're doing it regularly, it's probably high importance. Right, but we're talking grand scheme of things, so we'll talk more about that in a second. So, um, All right, so now let's talk about potential conflicts. Are there any potential conflicts between these? Yes. Give, give me an example of how one of these might conflict with the other. Okay. Well, it'd probably be more conflict if it was a Detroit Lions fan because the game's on being on Sunday. Okay, sure. So, all right. So we're gonna put we're gonna put right here game times. All right. I was gonna do Lions, but I didn't know if anybody here was a committed Lions fan. So. Being on a winning team versus a losing. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So. If there is a sports fan versus being a church member, game times are potentially going to be a conflict. Yes. Amount of money you spend on it could potentially be a conflict. The, the amount of time you devote to it. Okay, yeah. Uh, so we'll just say amount of time as well, not just which times, but how much time you devote to it. Okay. What about, I mean, I didn't intentionally line these up here, but these two, let's just take these two next. Reads comic books versus being an employee. Could there be any conflicts there? Not if you have yes. read comic books for a living. Well, true. Okay, but let's say that that's not your job. Okay. So there could be a conflict with getting work done, right? Because you could be sitting back there doing some reading when you're supposed to be stocking shelves or whatever else, right? Okay. So there's a potential conflict there. Uh, there's other ones we could. We'll keep moving for sake of time. Um, let's say. Let's take these two here. If you're a parent or spouse or child, 
Is that going to come in conflict with exercising regularly? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, uh, we'll just put the idea of responsibilities, right? Because if, uh, if you want to go for a 10-mile run and your parents are like, you need to take out the trash right now, then that's going to be an obstacle, right? Or, um, you know, just hypothetically speaking. Or if you're a parent and you're like, hey, I want to go do whatever, but, you know, my kid's sick, then I've got to take care of my kid, and that's going to take a higher priority, at least with depending on what it is you're trying to do. Um, I'm not sure that there is a great way to connect enjoys jokes with shops at Costco. Sure it is. Same thing. It's the same thing? Costco is a joke? Okay. <laughs> All right. Some strong feelings here. Um, let's, let, all right, let's, let's connect these two, because this one's probably an easier connection. You're an employee, but you enjoy jokes. Yeah? Well, let's say you offend the boss because you make a joke at his expense. Could that become in conflict with your job? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, offending others in general. Offending people in general, right. Jim, you had something? No. Oh, okay. So my point is just to say these have varying levels of importance, and sometimes they're going to clash with each other. All right, so let's build on that a little bit more. Um, people operate out of many layers of identity. Nonetheless, these layers generally correspond with people's cultural circles or just different aspects of their life. He, he lists, for example, vocations. I'm a UPS pilot. He's not, but he just gave that as an example. Um, our families. I'm a mother. Again, clearly the author is not saying that, but he's just saying as an example, if someone says, I'm a mother, then that's going to be something that is an aspect of who they are as a person. Uh, personal gifting, I'm a singer. Personal accomplishments, maybe a college graduate or have some sort of certification or uh, you know, have some sort of work experience. Nationality, ethnicity, church affiliation, community, and other key associations. For him, it was, I'm an Ohio State Buckeye, or maybe someone's a member of local government, or all those sorts of things. He says each of these matters for how people perceive themselves. Now, as we go to the right-hand column on the page there, he says, within every human heart, there is a given identity and a constructed identity. Uh, sorry, I skipped a paragraph. God designed people to operate out of an established self-conception, that ideally correlates their true identity as God designed them, but this is never entirely the case for fallen humanity. Within every human heart, there is a given identity and a constructed identity. He's defining this as given identity, who God's designed them to be, how God designed them to function in the world. People's constructed identity is their established self-image made up of a complex arrangement of various conceptions, values, and commitments about who they are and what role they play in the world. People are often aware of their construct unaware, I'm sorry, of their constructed identities. So here's a bigger question. Is the given or constructed identity framework helpful? Is the whole concept of identity helpful? And perhaps even a more underlying question is, is it biblical or where does it come from? <clears throat> Paul? Well, constructed identity is is helpful for you to peel back what you're doing. Okay. To actually look at yourself and say, what am I portraying here? And then, why am I doing that? Okay. Um, so, I, so it could be helpful is what you're saying. It can be helpful as long as you use it in the right manner. Okay. Huh? Would we divide it and say our given identity is given by God and our constructed identity is our flesh? 
I'd say probably for the second at least that it's self-oriented, yes. But what I'm trying to get at though is whether this, I don't, paradigm might not be the best word, but this framework of identity at all, is the word identity found anywhere in scripture? Not that we can really think of. Is the concept of identity found in scripture? That's a little more tricky because I think there are things that seem to fit within that framework. But let's even back it up a step further. Where does the concept of identity come from? Why did people start looking at this? Jim? Was it a way to identify who we think we are? Yes, but why do people start wanting to think about that? Like what, what historical or whatever been used? Okay, yeah, so maybe maybe pride is part of the motivation, Bob? Well, and, you know, it, the Bible does say that we ha we are born to worship, we, and we find our ultimate identity in God. Okay. So if we are not finding our identity in God, we search for other things to, to build that identity around. And, it, I mean, it's just like it, it's idolatry to a certain extent. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. Rob, you had your hand up, and then Paul. I was going to say modern psychology. Okay, yeah. So I think if we had to say the source in terms of historically, I think we would say modern psychology leads people to this idea of identity, and then Christians have said, all right, so what does this have to do with the Bible? I'm not therefore saying it's all wrong or sinful. I'm just saying let's, let's examine the source. Paul, you got something? And Jonathan? Okay. I want to be like God. Okay. So as I said, that's kind of where it started. Okay. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, you could look at Lucifer himself. He looked at his position, you know, the, the hovering angel over God, and wanted to be more like God. And you can carry this example down. You can look at, like, um, who was the guy that was in charge of building the temple in Babylon or whatever. Tower of Babel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. I mean, you know, I mean, examples of people who wanted to, you know, lift themselves up and make themselves something under themselves. Alright, yeah, so the conflict between, shall we say, man and God, instead of saying man, because we want to include Satan in here, between creature and creator. Nimrod, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. So the, this conflict between creature and creator is way back here, some examples of this, of which modern psychology is a... There's aspects of modern psychology that were connected with businesses saying, how can we make people be better employees? And so before we had the idea of identity, there was kind of this spot in between where we had this idea of role responsibility. Okay, so role and responsibility and then it kind of went from there to the idea of identity. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is the word identity is not sinful in and of itself, but it carries a great deal of baggage. And because of all the baggage that it carries, we need to be aware of what are some of the things that underlie that term. So when a person out in the world uses the idea of identity in the present time, they're going to think, um, you know, 
something like how I feel about me, right? So that's kind of where people are at, let's say, in 2021. This, in let's say the 1970s, would have had more to do with, um, how do I put it? Let's just say society, okay? So how do I function? This is more about how do I function in society. So for example, I'm an employee, which means I work for my boss, and we try to be productive, right? Whereas now, it's less about that and more about how do I feel about me. So I feel that I am a whatever. And that becomes the most important thing to that person. So it has less to do with how can I be a productive part of society and more about like how do I think about myself, how do I feel about myself. So for example, I was listening to something in NPR on the way driving somewhere in the last few days and there was this this lady on there and she was just going on and on about how she had this embarrassing incident in her life and how this embarrassing incident in her life like reshaped her entire self-perception and 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 all these other and she just went on and on for like 20 minutes about this I didn't listen to the whole thing but I turned it off and I turned it back on and she was still going about it so um, my point with that is to say it's very much self-focused how do I feel about me how does this affect me so then we have things flowing out of the idea of identity like you know really popular phrases now are things like self-care mental health you know all those sorts of things now that all gets really tricky because there can be things functionally wrong with our brains there can be spiritual problems that lead us to sin and Mental health tends to be the secular world's attempt to avoid that whole discussion, but still recognize we're more than just physical beings. The whole self-care thing, there's an extent to which, yes, you know, there, you have to rest. Eventually you get burnt out if you don't rest. But the Bible tends more toward, you know, Paul's example where he's willing to serve and be used up by, in God's service instead of only focused on maximizing his personal pleasure in life. All right, moving on from all that back to the page here. Um, is there a better starting point or terminology for these ideas? I don't have perhaps a specific term, but my, my argument would be, this is good, this identifying the conflict between creature and creator. I think we should say, Bible, then our thoughts, then we can look at you know, how the world around us uses terminology. What we tend to do is turn that on, on end. We start with what the world says, then we go to our thoughts, then we try to find things in the Bible to justify what the world is saying about these things. So all I'm saying is, start with the Bible, don't start with the secular concept. So, if you want to use the word identity, this book has probably the best discussion I've come across of what identity actually might have to do with and how to think through it biblically. So, he says, with regard to given identity, which is, I'm on the same page. I don't love the terminology, but I'm on the same page. Here are four truths derived from Scripture that we need to start with in order to have a proper self-concept related to what God has said is true. So, um, so I kind of, I, I phrase this as a question. I'm just going to say, yes, I think these are biblical. Let's think about some passages where we see them. So four statements about given identity. He says, I am created and therefore both eternally valuable and inescapably dependent. Okay? So, um, where could we see this idea that we are created beings? Just give me some verses. Fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Okay, fearfully, wonderfully made. Psalm 139. Even earlier in the Bible, where do we see it? Genesis. Genesis 1, Genesis 3. We see the fact that we are creatures made by God. Which then means, if we're made in God's image, we are valuable because we're made in God's image, not because we're so wonderful. And we are inescapably dependent. We will never be the creator. We will always be the created ones. Okay? So I think that one's pretty clear, that that's a biblical concept. So what... Uh, what effect does that have on all of these other things? Well, God should be our starting point, our reference point, not ourselves. Um, he says, uh, so three things that he points out. God created people male or female. So God decides that. Second, God created people capable of knowing things about the world. And then the third thing he points out here is God created people with limits to their capacities and these are not merely moral. In other words, Adam and Eve were limited in knowledge even before they ate of the tree. So their limited knowledge compared to God's omniscience is always a distinction of creature versus created thing. So that's the first truth that he talks about. Second truth, I am fallen and therefore bad and broken. People are bad, which is another way of saying that they are sinners not just theoretically, but actively and inescapably sinners. It's not just like, I might be a bad person if I chose to be. No, we are bad people by default. Ben? Uh, like Romans 10, 3, 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Good. So Romans 3 is a great passage. There is something in the Psalms, I forget which Psalm it is, that makes similar points. Maybe Psalm 51, but some other Psalms that I think Romans 3 quotes from. Um, the verse about from her mother's womb we come forth speaking lies, like this is a very early thing. It's not just something, you know, when you hit 10 years old, you start being bad. You know, little kids, you tell them no, what do they do? They throw their cup on the floor, right? I mean, this is not something we have to learn. It's something that's a part of us. So this idea that we are bad and we are broken, people are not just bad, but they're broken as well. Being bad implies voluntary participation and being broken emphasizes the involuntary victimhood of their self-estrangement. In other words, we sin, but then that sin enslaves us and traps us and makes us miserable, and all those consequences we can't control even if we were able to choose the sin in the, in the first place. So that's an important concept as well. And so when we're, when we're trying to encourage or challenge people with these things, we have to recognize Sin is our responsibility, but all of the connected consequences of sin are often things that we don't realize. So, um, let me give you an illustration of this. My neighbors um, had another thing with the ordinance officer this week. I think the neighbors called again the ordinance office, but I'm not for sure on that. I'll hopefully find out more tomorrow when he's back in town. They were complaining because they didn't like something about my yard. The latest citation I got said, well, I'd put up a privacy screen along the, along the line, uh, the fence line, which at first the neighbors were happy about because they didn't have to look at the plants they didn't like. But the latest citation from the code officer says you can't have a privacy screen on your fence. So it seems like what's going to happen is because they complained about the plants, but it was an unjustified complaint, I both don't have to get rid of the landscaping and they're going to have to look at it because I'm going to have to take the privacy screen now. 
So that's what I'm trying to do, illustrate unintended consequences. Because we went down this path here, here's what resulted over there. Now, I could be wrong. It may work out a different way. But my point is to say, we start out thinking we're going to achieve one goal here. And then it leads us all these other directions that we didn't even anticipate. And that's what happens with sin. If I start lying over here, I don't anticipate that it could lead to like me losing my job over here. Right? So it's, it's, we, we tend to just look at the one sin here, and it's not isolated. It has all these ripple effects. Um, third truth. I am redeemed and therefore forgiven and loved. Now, this is the transition point. You could draw a line between the first two statements and the second two statements, because the first two are true of everybody in the world. These second two are only true of what people? Christians. Christians, people who have come to believe in God. So, I'm redeemed and therefore forgiven and loved. If we are redeemed, and this is where I think the idea of our identity in Christ is a common way that a lot of newer books talk. Again, I don't love the phrasing, but what they're trying to get at is this truth. If we are in Christ, we are forgiven and we are loved by God. And that's a very important truth to keep in mind because if I am fixated on the idea that I'm a sinner, when I'm supposed to be moving from being a sinner to being holy and like Jesus, then I'm going to tend to wallow in self-pity and I'm going to tend to um, not ever move past the specific sin to obedience to God. And so it is important in our thoughts to recognize that in Christ we have forgiveness. It's also important to recognize that in Christ we are loved because it would be very easy for us to say, well, if I'm a miserable sinner and if I am bad and broken, then all that happens to me bad is only what I deserve. There's a degree to which that is true and there's a degree to which that is unhelpful. It's true from the perspective of the fact that we receive anything short of hell is God's mercy to us. It's unhelpful from the perspective of if we, if we push that too far, then for people who are prone to being uh, uh, emotional and fixated on things that are discouraging and all that, we're going to end up in sort of a downward spiral that is not even God can love me is sort of the conclusion that we draw. So I think we have to be careful. It is true that we deserve God's punishment. It is true that we are bad and broken, but the fact that God shows love to us despite those things ought to give us hope and help us to move past a concept of ourselves that no one can ever love me and I'm not worth anything and all those sorts of things because God does show love to us even though we don't deserve it. Third truth. Or let, let's just say uh, any, any verses that talk about this, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so are we. 1 John 2, 12, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So those are two passages that he's drawing those ideas from. Sins are forgiven in Jesus, we receive love in Jesus. Not love that we deserve, not love that's occasioned by good in us, but love nonetheless, and we should recognize and receive that. Fourth truth, I am newly created and therefore cleansed and waiting. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are translated from the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. We are transferred from slavery to sin into obedience to God. He talks about, and this is where it gets difficult, because depending on your perspective on the end times, you might not agree with all of his phrasing, but he says this. Um, let me just read it to you. He says, 
The reality that Jesus' kingdom is present and future, the kingdom is here, but it's still coming. The biblical writers constantly speak of believers as new creations who await a new creation in the final sense. Wherever you land on your understanding of when the kingdom is coming, like what percentage of it is now versus what percentage is in the millennium, all of those sorts of things, the Bible lays out this truth very clearly. Our salvation is certain and we can be confident in it, but we haven't yet experienced all the blessings of it. So in Ephesians, where it says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, you're actually seated in a chair at a table in the fellowship hall. You're not actually seated in heaven in the physical, experiential sense. And yet, that is so certain that you will be seated with, heaven, with Christ in heaven that Paul is able to speak of it as being a present reality. So there's this, this fascinating tension between we're not yet there, but we are sure we will be. And so however we end up phrasing that, that is an important truth that we see throughout Scripture. So we are, as it says here, created and therefore both cleansed through Jesus' blood and also waiting for the realization of all the hopes that we have laid out before us. Before we go on to the next little section, any quick thoughts or questions or discussion on what we talked about so far? Paul. It's like a last analogy. It's like you got invited to a wedding. Yeah. And you are a speech, so I'm going to be there. And you're not there, but there's a seat with your name on it there. It's a good analogy. Yeah. Good. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, I think <clears throat> what you were saying there about these truths and that some people are inclined to see the worst side of um, conviction being discouraged by sin, that we're saved and cleansed and to focus on that with some people is a good thing. Okay. I'm not saying it quite right, but... No, I, I, get, I get what you're saying, yeah. I think that's going to depend on the person, because if someone is stubbornly continuing in a, a habit of sin, then, like, I think it says in First Thessalonians, admonish the unruly. But at the same time, if someone's downhearted, help the downhearted, help the fainthearted, help the weak, you know, those sorts of things. So that's going to depend on the person's disposition and their background and many factors. So then he lays out three avenues of evaluating aspects of a person's identity. So, so let's think about whether these are helpful. Again, like I said, if we could use a different word than identity, I'd probably prefer that. But if we're going to, if we're going to use the word recognizing all the baggage that it has, here's a helpful way for evaluating it. So what is the source of this thing that I think or feel or choose with regard to myself? That's a really important question, right? So, if we, um, if we come here and we say, well, what's the source of being an MSU fan? Why might I be an MSU fan? Why are you an MSU fan? Okay. So we're going to say a family connection, okay? So in terms of that source, is the source reliable? I mean, it's debatable. <laughs> it's debatable about all of us if we're talking about just ourselves in isolation. Okay, so we need to ask that question. Um, what about the idea of being a parent, spouse, or a child? Where did those ideas come from? Reality. But more specifically, what? Okay, so from the Bible or from God, okay? Yeah, so that leads to the concept of being a parent, spouse, or child. So, 
When we come here to this idea of role and responsibility from, let's say, 1970s, 1960s, 1970s, secular psychology, business psychology, whatever phrase they would have used, it corresponds relatively closely to reality. But the reason is, and the reason this is of high importance versus some of these other things, is because it's recognizing a truth that is in Scripture without necessarily acknowledging that it's from Scripture. So when in 1970 your boss said, you're an employee and you're supposed to work hard and here's all the things you're supposed to do because you're an employee, that's biblical, uh, biblical framework for thinking through it. Why? Because where does the concept of being an employee come from? Yeah, so the Bible phrases it more in master-slave, and so it would be an application of the idea of master and slave in the Bible. So, for example, in Ephesians 5, 6. So, let's say Ephesians 6, Colossians, several places where Paul discusses this. So, this is maybe not quite as closely derived from the Bible as this. This is very clear. You are a parent, spouse, or child. This is an application of these, these things exist in society, so to the extent that you are in those relationships, fulfill them well. Okay, But it still has a more close biblical connection than some of these other things. So the things that we identified as of low importance, they're of low importance not necessarily in and of themselves, but because our allegiance to them is not derived from Scripture, but from something or someone else. If I'm a Lions fan, I'm not a Lions fan because the Bible says to be a Lions fan. Yes, right. I am that because of, it could be family, it could be some other kind of peer pressure, right? All my friends are Lions fans or MSU fans or whatever, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to root for them. Yeah. Yeah, where you live, okay. Yeah. And all of these things, while factors, are not nearly as weighty or important as the Bible and God said it. So that's an important thing to think about. So source. Now the next thing is center, and center gets into this question of importance. Okay? Is a particular layer too close to the center of a person's identity? So I'm going to add one more to all these that we talked about earlier, and I'm going to put political affiliation, or rather than affiliation, let's say uh, political ideology. All right? Let's say something like, I am a capitalist, right? which I'm not spelling this right, so that's kind of, but that's a grammar thing. Okay. Um, political ideology, I'm a capitalist. How important is that? In terms of what? <laughs> In terms of God. Well, let's start with the source question. Is this derived from Scripture, or what influences this? The fact that we grew up in the United States, most likely. Yeah. Okay? Might also be based on some books that we read, right? Um, there, it might also be, considering some other sources, it might also be, you know, who our friends are on Facebook, people that we follow. But I think we would be hard-pressed to say that a, a, being a capitalist should be so strongly an aspect of ourselves as Christians that it is of equal importance as something like this. Being a parent, spouse, or child very clearly associated with Scripture. 
being convinced that capitalism is the right economic system, there are perhaps biblical principles. At best, it is a step below this one, right? So if employee is an application of the master-slave relationship in Ephesians 6, then something like capitalism could at best be an application of the idea of working hard and some principles from Proverbs, right? Maybe. But, again, what's that? I see a lot of all right, but, but here's what I'm saying. We have a specific command, we have a principle, and we have an application, right? So specific command, parents, here's how you're supposed to treat your children. Principle would be the employee is supposed to work hard, and application would be, therefore, capitalism is a good system for making that happen. So I'm saying at best it's a third tier thing in terms of authority and importance. Okay? I'm not saying that I'm for socialism, just so we're clear. I'm not saying I'm for socialism. I'm saying that in terms of our prioritization of things that are important about who we are, if we're going to say, what things do I spend most of my time doing? And this gets into purpose. What is the end goal of a particular layer of identity? Independent glory or derived glory? So. Let's take the political ideology one. Well, let's, let's start with MSU one, because that one's easier. Why are you an MSU fan? What's the end goal? Support a winning team. Okay, you want to see them win? Okay. And by extension, you win, right? You can go around and be like, my team won, so I'm better than you, because your team lost. At its most basic level. Now. Is it sinful to cheer for the team that's winning because they're your team? No. But if it becomes the entire focus of your life, then we're violating this, this issue of importance here. Sorry, I circled the wrong one. Potentially because the source that we derived it from is at least extra biblical, right? Okay. And then if it becomes the main focus of our life, then there's a certain point at which, getting to Bob's point about idolatry, the goal is no longer to honor God and what we're doing with this thing, but to honor ourselves. So, cheer for your team. That's fine. But it cannot be what you spend 90% of your time on, and it cannot be more important to you than things God has said you must do in terms of ministering to other people and all those sorts of things. Coming back to the one about political ideology. I just want to admonish you guys, because I see people making posts about political things on Facebook all the time. If all you ever do is harp on political things, that's all people are going to know you for, and you will cut off your ministry to them. Because honestly, your goal is not to convince them to vote for someone in whatever political party. It shouldn't be anyway, because the goal is not that you and I win in terms of who gets elected. The goal should be that people become convinced of things like this, what the Bible says are true, and the only way that that's going to happen is if they have a relationship with Jesus. And the only way they're going to have a relationship with Jesus is if we point them to him. And so, um, if our identity is so focused on things that have a questionable or unreliable source, things that are far more important to us than they should be, and things with a goal that say, join my winning team, and I'm not talking sports team, I'm saying join my winning team, we all agree on this idea, rather than glorify God, 
then our identity is skewed and needs correction according to Scripture. That's, that's the point that I'm trying to make here with regard to this. So there's tons more that we could talk about with this, but the main idea is we all have things that we think and value and choose. Those things have to be brought into alignment and submission to what God has said. All right, let's end there. We'll pray and, uh, and go into the regular service. Dear God, we pray that you'd help us to think through your truths to submit who we are to who you call us to be and not just what you call us to think but also what you call us to value to feel what you call us to do the choices that we make every day so that we might move from listening to voices that sometimes are true and many times are not to listening to your word as the primary source for our ideas that we would move from valuing things that are fleeting and temporary to valuing what you say is really important, that we move to our end goal being to glorify you instead of primarily to glorify ourselves. Lord, give us grace in this task because it is a lifelong struggle. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.